All right, church. You've seen this before. You've experienced it. You've seen someone in the subway kind of stop. They have a musical instrument. They set it down the case. They open up the case. They take out their instrument and they begin to play and they leave the case open, hoping that as you walk by, you'll toss a dollar or, or $5 or $10 in as they play music as you're walking by. You've seen this. You may not have known there's an official term for, for this. That person is called a busker. A busker. You learned something at church already. I have more for you than that. Don't worry. But there, there was a man outside of Washington, D.C., and he had determined that part of his afternoon, he was going to go busk. And he brought his musical instrument, and he arrived at the bottom of the stairwell outside of the train, and he put down his violin case, and he opened his violin case, and he began to play. And he played for 43 minutes. And in this time of playing for 43 minutes, 1,001 1,017 people walked past him. During this time, he received $53.17 in tips, which is not bad for an hour's work, really. But as people walked by, kind of just in their busyness, it's, it's not an unusual thing to see someone playing a guitar or a violin or a saxophone in the subway. They were just you know, got to get to work on time, got to try to stop by the coffee shop on the way, got to get here, got to get here. With their busyness, they didn't really pay attention to him or the music he played. It was just in the background. Out of the 1,017 people that saw him, we're having some occasional light issues. Don't worry. We're going to be okay. Um, Out of the 1,017 people that saw him, seven of them stopped and actually listened for a little while. And then they went on. What no one really recognizes, the violin that he played uh, is today worth about $14 million. That though he looked pretty normal in his jeans and a ball cap, his name is actually Joshua Bell. And he, his normal rate for a performance is $100,000. The night before, he had played to a sold-out crowd. And here in the subway, I don't know if it messed with his ego at all. Maybe he thought people would just be genuinely attracted to to his incredible skill. He's been a child prodigy with violin since he was four years old. Maybe he expected people would be too busy and not pay attention. But at least for someone who was used to playing for sold out crowds, for seven people to stop. There had to be some part of his ego that kind of was like, don't you guys know what you're missing right now? People pay to see me and you won't even stop for a minute. $53? Really? I should be getting a $100,000 check for this. That story has always kind of locked in my mind because I just, I think it's so easy to get caught up in the mundane things that we're doing that we can often walk right past the beautiful and never even notice it. We can, we can be close to church and close to the things of church and we become callous to who the God is that we worship, who the God is that we speak of, about the majesty of who Christ is, that it just becomes so commonplace that we fail to see the beauty for who he is. Here in Southwest Florida, I'll tell you, there's so many times where it's like, I have to go take the garbage out and I whine and complain about it like a 12-year-old boy and I get it and I know that that happens to me. But while I'm out there, I will just stop and I'll see the stars above and I'll be like, why am I sitting inside all of the time? This is incredible. And this beauty is here all the time, but I'm like, you know, 
busy with this, busy with little things that don't matter. And today's message, I really just want to focus your eyes back to the incredible beauty of who Christ is. I want, I want you to see just how clearly the Old Testament paints a portrait for who this Jesus is that would be born. If it's your first week with us, we have been on a series called The Story, where we've been going through the story of Scripture from the very beginning in the garden at creation with Genesis and Adam and Eve, where God began to work, and he's been writing the story of redemption across generations. And this week, we are on the birth of Christ. And so we've, it's not quite July yet, but we've got some Christmas in July going on today. A little bit of Christmas story. But really, my focus for you is I want you to see that the Old Testament creates this vivid picture of who Jesus would be. And I want to reassure your intellect. A lot of the emotions are designed to spur you towards action. I really want to reaffirm some of your intellect so that it empowers you with confidence to take action in your faith today. And so today's message might be a little bit more focused on just, you know, here, here's a picture, here's a picture, here's a picture. But we're going to start with the Gospel of John chapter 1, which is one of the main passages from, from this week's chapter in the story. And it says, and we'll put this up on the screen as I read it, Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, even as I read that, when I read the term glory, I feel like our expectation, our, our comprehension of the word glory is so small compared to what it should be. When you see something, when you think back to when you were a child and it's like one of the first fireworks shows that you can remember and your eyes got big and you were amazed and you said, that was amazing. Or men, when you think back, to your wedding day when you saw your wife walk down the aisle and you sure better have made an expressive look on your face when you saw her and you were like, she looked incredible. Just like she looked incredible yesterday too, but the wedding day is extra special, right? You remember it that way. When you think of the most beautiful things you've ever seen, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, if you've been in the middle of the ocean and the view was just spectacular and your soul resounded with a view and just amazement and said that, there's just a glory to it. The most incredible glory that God has to offer, it was on display in his son. And our reaction when we get an accurate picture of who the person of Jesus is, it should have that reaction of saying, he is breathtaking. It's incredible that he would love me. It's incredible that he would lay his life down for us. The glory of God is on display in him. And that, that glory, it took its dwelling among us. I'm going to go to verse 1 of the Gospel of John chapter 1. And we'll put this up on the screen. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When, when we see this description that Jesus is the word of God, 
We're used to the, the Bible using descriptive language that's maybe outside of our context, and so we kind of roll through it. But I want to spur you to try to understand why it's using some of this terminology. Why is Jesus called the Word of God? You have to remember that this message was being spoken to Hebrew people, that, that they have studied the Old Testament that we just completed. This last week was the last week of the Old Testament for us. And so they were really well-versed in the messages of the Old Testament. So when the Gospel of John begins to say that Jesus was the Word of God, immediately there are multiple things that their mind would connect to the statement that Jesus is the Word of God. Number one, they would think about the power of God, that in, at the beginning in creation, God created the universe by the power of His what? His Word. And so when Jesus is called the Word of God, they would have immediately connected to, so you're saying that this person is the same amount of power as what spoke the sun in the universe and the solar systems and all that we can see in the night sky, spoke all of that into existence. That exists in one person. That, that kind of power exists in him, it, it, as well as the nature of who he is. The gospel, gospel of John chapter one, it says the word was with God and the word was God. That it was his power, that it was his very nature. The Gospel of John chapter 1, if, if anyone ever questions what Scripture teaches about the person of Jesus Christ, you can easily just take them to the Gospel of John chapter 1 and say, this was no mere good teacher. Scripture is clear that he existed before and he will exist after. That everything that has been created was created through him and in all nature he is God. And in fact, when it calls him the word of God, it doesn't just talk about his nature or his power, but it talks about his wisdom. That in Christ dwelled all of the wisdom of God. And as Proverbs teaches us to seek after wisdom, that wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. All of Proverbs, all of the Old Testament was just arrows pointing us to this person of Christ. With him being the word of God, it also reveals that he was how God would communicate, make himself known to us. That as God spoke, God would be speaking through this person and making his nature more clearly known to all of mankind. There's a lot that's embedded and encapsulated in that statement that Jesus is the word of God. It also says the blessings of God would flow through his word. So he was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, th this word dwelt, it's so important to dive into study on some things because as you read a passage, it would be so easy to miss this, this piece of the passage that would stand out so clearly to a Hebrew person who is hearing this. Even as they were hearing it in Greek, they would have understood that the word that it was used, that we translate dwell in most of our translations, it is the same word that would be used when they were speaking of the tabernacle. And so some translations, or when you get into study, you'll, put, you'll find this very clearly, that the passage more clearly says that Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, if you were with us as we were studying in Exodus and Numbers, and, and we were looking at the tabernacle, the tabernacle was one of the first places of worship that God gave the Israelite people. When the Israelite people were in captivity in Egypt, and he led them out of Egypt with power and signs and wonder. And he brought them to Sinai. And at Sinai, when God gave Moses the 10 commandments and the law, he also gave him instructions for the tabernacle. And Moses prayed one of the most significant prayers in scripture, by my opinion, when he prayed, 
God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. Unless your presence goes with us, don't make us leave here from this place. And so God gave Moses instructions for the tabernacle where the presence of God would dwell. And so when scripture, when gospel of John says that Jesus tabernacled amongst us, not only is he the word of God, the power of God, the divinity of God, but he's tabernacling amongst us. The Hebrew people would have thought back to this was the place where all of the sacrifices would go. And in fact, this was, you could say, maybe the first portable church. I am convinced that God loves portable churches from scripture. It would be set up and it would be torn down. And what would happen is they would set it up and they would worship and they'd give their sacrifices. And then a pillar of cloud and fire would lead when it was time to go. And this is what the Hebrew people would think of, that the tabernacle was leading their way through the wilderness, leading them to the promised land. And so when scripture says that Jesus tabernacled amongst us, the Hebrew person would have said, so this is the person that we're supposed to follow to the promised land? This is the person who's leading us towards the promises that were spoken to Abraham generations ago. Jesus, he's tabernacling amongst us. He's all of the fullness of God in man. He is Emmanuel, God amongst us, leading the way. The tabernacle was also holy. It's where the priests would offer the sacrifices. Only certain people could even approach it and touch it or enter into it. It was a holy place. And as scripture describes, that Jesus would tabernacle amongst us in his life. Um, There's other things that would be connected to the the tabernacle in the Hebrew people's mind. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, where there's the instructions in verse 10, Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years in the year of canceling debts during the festival of tabernacles. This is an interesting thing about the history of the Hebrew people, the Israelite nation, is that at After that, they were given a festival of the tabernacle. They were supposed to celebrate every year to remember the way that God moved amongst them in the tabernacle. So it wouldn't have been just like, hey, generations ago, we heard about the tabernacle. They would remember the festival of the tabernacle. They celebrated it every year. And on the seventh year during the festival of the tabernacle, all debts would be forgiven. Don't you wish. Part part of their, their culture in times of what would end up happening People would find themselves in difficult situations and they'd sell their family's property or even sell themselves into servanthood or slavery. But rather than allow that to continue on, the Israelite people were commanded every seven years during the feast of the tabernacle, all is to be forgiven. All the land is to be restored to the rightful heirs and all the people are to be set free from their debts. And so when scripture says Jesus tabernacled amongst us, the Hebrew people would have thought of freedom and forgiveness already from that. And all of this is embedded. And this is why it's so important for us as a congregation to study through the Old Testament because there is so much wisdom and treasure and beauty and glory embedded in these passages that we just read over because we don't have the traditional context of study to say this is what connects to it. This is what the tabernacle means. This is what worship was like in the tabernacle. This is what people would feel when they thought about the festival of tabernacle. They would feel like no more student loans. It would feel like no more credit card bills. It would feel like the house that got foreclosed and taken away from me that I grew up in, it gets restored to my family. Those are the feelings that they would have. And scripture says Jesus is that. That beauty, that glory, that forgiveness, that freedom. 
That's the very beginning of who Jesus is. All of the fullness of God dwelling in one man. He tabernacled amongst us. And he was, as the passage says, full of grace and truth. Some of us really like grace. We really like being at peace with people. And so we will forgive and ignore all kinds of things. And I want to tell you that's not Christ-like. Truth is truth. And it is not kind to tell someone that a destructive behavior is just as good as any other option. It is not loving to allow someone to go down a path of destruction. And we, we have an inclination on this subject, and you probably know yourself to say which way the barometer leans for you, but some of us have an inclination towards grace, and we just want to ignore all things and not deal with anything and just let it be water under the bridge, even though it's really pressure cooking and it's hurting us below the surface and it's hurting other people and we don't want to bring it up. And I want to tell you, Jesus was not just grace. He was grace and truth. When we look at the woman who was caught in adultery and the way that Jesus handles it is, is just beautiful because there is a woman who said, scripture says she was caught in the act of adultery. In the act. And from there she was dragged before Jesus' feet. Where the man was, he should have been dragged too if it was really a just occurrence, but that didn't happen. Which shows you about the partiality of the parties that were involved already. But so they dragged this woman to the feet of Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery. All of the indications from scripture were clear that she was guilty of it, that she was literally caught. And he said, you know, those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. And he showed grace and he said, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. And he didn't just say, okay, then leave. He said, then go and sin no more. Now, I don't know if you've ever had someone say something to you and the way that they said it to you really stuck. But I can only imagine what it would feel like to look into the eyes of Jesus himself and he looks at you and he says, go and sin no more. I would imagine that it shook her to her core. He was grace and he was truth. Now don't think that you're getting off the hook, you truth people. The way that we live matters and the way that we live has consequences. But don't miss the importance of grace. And in fact, I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to see other people's sin than our own sin. There's something about our own sin that is obstructed by the plank that is in our eye, but we so surely can see the speck that is in someone else's eye or in their life. And there's so many passages about the forgiveness that we must, we must, that we are required to extend to other people. 
And in fact, I would say that it's part of your faith in God, in the justice of God to say, I don't have to hold someone else to account because God will be authoritative over that. God will handle justice. I get to be an ambassador of grace. And so I will allow God to handle the justice and I will give the grace. I won't lie, I won't cover up, I won't minimize a mistake, but I will extend grace because of the grace upon grace that has been showed to me. A couple weeks back, I, I put this quote um, on my social media at the passing of um, Pastor um, Tim Keller, who unfortunately passed away from cancer, but he was a great author and leader, and he wrote about grace this way. He said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. I'm gonna read that again, and I'm gonna read it slowly because I, I want it to soak in. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. This is true of you. This is true of me. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. We are more loved than we ever dared hope. When scripture talks about how Christ paid for our sins, atoned for our sins, the visual picture is that the righteousness of Christ actually covers us in a way that when God sees you, he sees all that Christ earned in his righteousness all over you. He no longer sees your flaws. He sees you with the perfection and the righteousness that Christ bought for you on the cross. That is how your God sees you. And so when I say that you are more loved than you ever dared imagine, you have to begin to picture that God in heaven sees you the way that he sees his son, Jesus. And that is the incredible depth to the love of God. And he sees us like that while we are at the same time so incredibly broken. And that should create in us a humility that overpowers any anger to want to bring wrath upon someone and it overpowers any thought in our head that would say, I know better than God in heaven. To say that his ways don't matter. No, his ways are higher than my ways. I will trust him in all things. And Jesus was the perfect example of being full of grace and truth. And it's so important that we are able to clearly see the glory of Christ in our life and in our mind and in our heart. Sometimes it's hard for us to, to believe at times because the, the time of Jesus is separated from ours. I, I wanna tell you that as we've studied the Old Testament, God was so meticulous in his planning. He was so intentional about the, the writing of the Old Testament that he created a beautiful portrait of Jesus in the Old Testament, that every book of the Old Testament in some way pointed our heart and our mind towards the Savior who would be born at the very right time that is described in the, the Gospels in your New Testament. And I'm going to go through, and this, this might not be the most exciting part of my message, but I want to make sure that I just nail down with a hammer 
clearly into your mind that there is not a God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, but from beginning of Genesis to end of Revelation, God has been writing one story through the generations, painting one portrait of this Messiah who would come. And in Genesis, we see right at the beginning when the fall happened, when man and woman chose sin, God gave a promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that tempted them into sin. In Exodus, Jesus is described as the Passover lamb, that the blood of the lamb would cover over them and judgment would pass over. And in the gospel of John chapter one, verse 29, Jesus is described as the lamb of God. In Leviticus, Jesus is described as the high priest. And then that is shadowed in Hebrews chapter four in the New Testament. In Numbers And in the gospel of John chapter one, he's described as our tabernacle. In Deuteronomy and in John one, he's described as being one who would be greater than Moses that was was to come. In the next book, in Joshua and in Revelations 19, he's described as the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he is described as the judge and the lawgiver. And in the gospel of John chapter five, he's described as the one who all authority and all judgment has been given to him. In Ruth, we see a picture of the kinsman redeemer that in John 8, 36, Jesus is described as the one who would set us free. In First and Second Samuel, he is described as the seed of David. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, even the blind men could see and call out to him, son of David, and asked for his power to be at work in their life. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. And in Mark 15, he's declared as the king over the Jews. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of God's temple. And in John chapter two, verse 12, Jesus declares, if you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it again in three days. In Nehemiah, he weeped over the broken city as he did in Luke 19, 41. In Esther, he is our advocate who goes before the king for our protection. And in 1 John 2, 12, it describes Jesus Jesus as our advocate before the throne of our heavenly father. In Job, he is our ever living redeemer that is echoed in John 8, 58. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In John 10, he is described as our good shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom In, in John Chapter one, he is the word of God that is wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our meaning for life. And in John 14, six, it says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. In the Song of Solomon, he is described as the loving bridegroom. And in Ephesians five, he is described as the perfect husband. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. And in Ephesians chapter two, he is our prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In John eleven thirty five, 35, he is weeping over the death of Lazarus, who, who he would soon raise up. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, he is the one who gives us a new heart when we have a heart of stone. In 2 Corinthians 5, it describes the fact that we are new creations in Christ. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. And in Hebrews 13, five, he says he will never leave you and never forsake you. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband. In Revelations 19, it describes the wedding feast of the lamb where he is joined together with his bride. In Joel, it describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would come that he further describes in John 16, seven, that when he leaves, he will send the spirit. And Amos, he is our burden bearer. And in John 19, he carried the cross for us. In Obadiah, he is the judge and savior that is described to be born in Bethlehem in Luke 2. In Jonah, he is the risen prophet who spent three days in the depths. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said that he is the resurrection in the life. In Micah, he is the ruler of the world from Bethlehem that was born as a baby in Matthew chapter two. In Nahum, he defeats our enemies as in Luke 20, verse 43, he says he'll make our enemies are footstools. In Habakkuk, he's, he's suffering, his suffering is described in chapter three, 
just like he suffered right at the right time in Galatians chapter four, verse four, as it is described in Zephaniah, he is mighty to save. And in Philippians chapter one, verse six, it describes a victory that will be found in Christ. In Haggai, he is the restorer. And first Peter verse five, 10 says that he will restore us, make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And in Malachi, it gives him the description as the silversmith refiner that 1 Corinthians 3 describes at that day where we stand before him, that as fire, he will burn away all the things that did not bring glory to him in our life. That our life will be tested as wood, straw, hay, and precious stones. And the things that we did in this life for impure motives or for, for selfish gratification will be burned away and what's left will be remaining holy. He is the one who is described through every book of the Old Testament and is then made known to us. And if you ever have a question in your mind, if Jesus was, was spoken about in the Old Testament, I want that question to be answered clearly. He's in every single book. Uh, during our small group this, uh, a week ago, one of the... Students in the small group that we're having at our house reminded me of a Christmas illustration that, that I like to use because when we talk about the birth of Christ, um, the statistical probability of it is just off the charts. Like it, it's one of those things that always rests in my mind when I think about Jesus. And uh, there's a study that was done on the statistical probability of these prophecies that Jesus had no control over coming true in his life. Because there's certain things that no matter what you do, you can't control. You can't control who your family is. You can't control where you're born. You can't control what the government is doing to other children when you're born. And there's hundreds of prophecies that people consider directed at the Messiah's life and birth and death. Um, but there's theological disagreement, but there's at least 60 major prophecies that they all agree on. These are definitely about Jesus. And the statistical probability of those 60 prophecies coming true in one person's life is just, it's impossible to understand. And so they narrowed it down. Let's just take eight of the prophecies. And the chances of eight of the prophecies that are written about Jesus coming true in one person, it has a statistical probability of one in a hundred quadrillion, 17 zeros behind it. But our mind can't really make sense of what that would look like. And so here I have for you about an inch worth of quarters. And if I asked you to guess the right one, you'd have about a one in 10 chance. But if I made this stack two feet tall, your, your chance of picking the right quarter is a lot lower. The statistical probability of just eight of the prophecies about Jesus coming true in one person's life would be like if I took two feet deep of half dollar coins and completely covered the state of Texas. Now, if you've ever driven through Texas before, you've been through a form of torture. <laughs> it's huge. I mean, the statement is, you know, it's big as Texas. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of bring it to Cape Coral size for you. Make sure I get my number right here. Um, Texas can fit 2,238 Cape Corals in Texas. Cape Coral is the second largest geographical city in Florida. Now, if you imagined if I took two feet deep of half dollar coins and covered our entire city in canals of Cape Coral and said, you get one chance to pick the right coin. Now multiply all of Cape Coral by 2,238. Two feet deep in half dollar coins, reaching in and on our first try, picking out the right coin. That's eight of the prophecies of Jesus. I mean, the statistical probability of these prophecies, it's just, it's mind blowing. 
God has done so much to guide us to his son before his son ever stepped foot on earth. And then when he did, the way that he taught and the way that he loved and the way that he gave up his life for us, it just causes a reaction in our heart where we just say it's beautiful and it's glorious and it stands out of all time because it even made us stop counting time and start differently because we put all of our calendars back to that time where God sent his son. And it's so easy to get caught up with the mundane things that we lose appreciation for this beautiful savior that was sent for us. And as we enter into the New Testament, I wanna rekindle the flame. I wanna refocus your eyes. Do you understand who we are looking at right here? That for generations, the promises were made, the pictures were, were painted, but here he is right at the beginning of the gospels. Emmanuel, God with us. I think this week at summer camp with the kids, seeing the passionate worship, the way that they prayed for each other, the way that they allowed God in and allowed God to work, it it challenged the status quo in a lot of their lives and in my life as well. I think so many of us have just been walking by this masterpiece and not appreciating it. So I want to call your attention back. Set your mind to the things of heaven. Set your mind onto your Savior and allow your worship to proceed from your heart and your mind in a way that just at least approaches the worthiness that he deserves. He is worthy of you taking that step. He is worthy of you taking that risk. Today, after our service, we get to do two baptisms. And there's lots of different ways that you might need to step forward in your faith. For you, it might be that you've been putting off baptism because you say, I should have done it years ago. I wanna challenge you. He's worthy of you taking that step. You might need to get your relationship with God started because you have long departed from him or never known him. He's worthy of you taking that step. Whatever it is where God is pushing you forward in your life, he's worthy of you taking that step. And so even today, as we pray and worship and as we celebrate baptism together, I pray that it continues to just give you confidence and courage to take that step because the savior that we worship, he is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our affection. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for your grace and for your truth that reigns over our lives. We're thankful for the way that you speak to us and we're thankful for the way that you've made yourself known in so many ways, in both what we feel and what we understand. Will you continue to guide us in the step that we need to take so that we can walk closely with you and just help our eyes to just recognize the beauty that you so loved us that you sent sent your only son so that whoever would believe would would not perish but would have eternal life. We thank you for that simple and fundamental truth that we get to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and play the baptism video. Hi, my name is Christy Larsh. I accepted Jesus into my heart at a young age. I got baptized when I was 15. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to Christian schools. I went to a year of Bible college. I was a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader. I was a small group leader. 
but I never really allowed God to have control of my life or let him fully all the way in. I wanted to do things my own way when I wanted to do them. I started slowly closing off my heart to God and to anything to do with God. I started to push God away and all Christians and anything to do with church. Fast forward to almost two years ago when we moved to Cape Coral, started going to Gulfside. Let's just say God got my attention last year, the beginning of last year. It was a fairly quick decision to return to the Lord and come back to Him, but it's been a very tough journey being able to forgive and heal and move forward this past year. I'm getting baptized today to mark a fresh start and a renewed purpose to let God lead me wherever He wants me to go. Hello, my name is Sandra Handling. My family and I have been attending Gulfside Church for about five and a half years, and in those years, my relationship with God has definitely been growing. We absolutely love Gulfside Church. Gulfside is this great supportive church community where there's always somebody to help you or pray for you. I was baptized as a baby, but I've been feeling this pull to take this next step in my faith and to strengthen my faith. I feel like I've, God has been asking me to do this for a while now, and I've just always found some kind of reason to wait. So Pastor Paul always says, whatever God asks of us, the answer should always be yes. So today my answer is yes, and I'm getting baptized.